Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9. You can find it on page 533 in the Bible provided there in the chairs. Now, we've come at last to the end of a nine-chapter introduction to the book of Proverbs. When the wise King Solomon wrote this book, he spent nine chapters just introducing the topic of God's wisdom and what that means for us and like how we should seek that to grow in life and holiness and godliness. The first eight chapters, our good father has taken us aside as his children to instruct us, to encourage us, to teach us, to plead with us, to desire to receive and to live according to God's wisdom rather than the world's. See, the God of the universe, the God that made and sustains all there is, including you and me, has revealed to us how we can truly live our lives to their fullest, how we can maximize the goodness and the glory and the joy in our lives to live the lives that we were always created to live. And apart from his wisdom, we can't know what that is. But the reality is we must embrace that. We must accept it. We must receive it. Our father has labored to show us the futility of living lives of foolishness. That though they offer so many promises, they hold them out for us and say, if you just take this, your life will be good. But yet we've all so often experienced that it has really left us empty that it has brought sin and misery and death to us. It cannot give what it promises. And yet so often, we continue to choose it. We continue to run after folly. But our Father not only warns us of the dangers of pursuing folly, He also reminds us of And teaches us about the incomparable value, the beauty, the reward of living according to God's wisdom. That that is what truly brings life. And he's given us lots of examples along the way about how God's wisdom applies to things like relationships or work or sex or money. For eight chapters, our Father has continued to build that argument one layer upon another over and over and over again. And before he can go any further into explaining how we can take God's wisdom and apply it to practical, everyday living, he needs to stop right here and say, listen, now is the time. He has drawn us to a point of decision and saying, listen, you must choose. You must choose. You cannot remain at a point of indecision here. You can either choose God's wisdom and find life or by default, even by doing nothing, what you're doing is choosing folly and death. You cannot remain neutral. You cannot remain idle. You cannot remain as a simpleton living in ignorance. As much as you would like to think that I can go on just putting this off, I can just delay this, I can just ignore this and set it aside and maybe just live my my life the way I want to for a little bit longer. He says, no, that doesn't work. Because to try to remain idle is to choose folly. It is. And it will lead you further and further and further down the path of foolishness. So you can go that way or you can make the commitment to spend your life seeking to know and to live according to the wisdom of God. One path leads to folly, to death, to eternal condemnation. And the other path leads to wisdom, to life, to eternal blessing in Christ. But Proverbs 9 brings us to a point of decision. And so what it's going to say to us is, listen, you must choose. You have to make a choice. Wisdom in life or folly in death. But ultimately it's up to you. You have a choice to make. Wisdom in life or folly in death. And so as we turn our attention to this text, I pray that we would strive to choose God's wisdom. Let's read it now. Proverbs chapter 9. 
says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Whoever lacks sense, or to him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes the seat on the high places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, in order for us to deal with this passage appropriately, we actually have to work from the outside of the text in, okay? In verses 1 through 6 and in verses 13 through 18, we're given two invitations, one from the lady wisdom and one from the woman folly. In verses 7 through 9 and again in verses 11 and 12, we're given two responses to this offer of wisdom. And then we come to verse 10 where we get at the very heart of this passage, and in fact, the very heart of the book of Proverbs, this one way to wisdom. And so what we have here are two invitations, two responses, but only one way to wisdom. So let's look at these two invitations, verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18. Now, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. Does it matter your age? Does it matter your race? Does it matter your your firstborn language, your culture? It doesn't matter anything about who you are, where you come from. Your life is filled all day and every day with conflicting messages. Every day you go through life being bombarded by all of these messages that will tell you one thing or another. Competing messages counseling you to do this or to do that, to live this way or to live that way, to set this as your hope and your life or this or this one and this one. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how many options are presented before you. You are being bombarded constantly by all of these messages that want to counsel you to live that way, whatever way they put before you. And this, my friends, can be confusing. It's, di- it's, it's difficult for us to determine how we should then live, what we should make our lives about, what we should do in any given situation. And this is why we need the wisdom of God. How else are we going to know what is true, what is right, what is good, what is pure? We need wisdom that is not from ourselves or from the world around us, but we need a uh, wisdom that is outside of us, that is above us, that can speak down to us. And so God is calling us to follow his will and his ways. He's giving us this wisdom so that we might live the lives that we were created to live, lives that are they're, they're lived to their fullest, that maximize our, our happiness and our joy and our satisfaction, but not in the ways that the world tells us. So every day we're bombarded with these myriad of messages. But fortunately for us, God is communicating with us to help us to see that no matter how many messages there are, they're really, they fall into one or two categories, either wisdom or folly. And we can know what they are. In Proverbs chapter 9, we see both messages being broadcast. In verses 1 through 6, wisdom's voice is personified as the lady wisdom. And we've seen her before. We saw her back in chapter 1. We saw her again in chapter 8. 
But here she is, and it says that Lady Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. But wisdom is not the only one speaking, is she? There's other voices at play, even right now, right? Okay, so in in verses 13 through 18, the woman folly also raises her voice. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat at the highest places of the town, calling out to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, not only are wisdom and folly speaking at the same time, but you've probably noticed other similarities between them. For example, they address the same people. In verse 4 and again in verse 16, those, those two passages are identical. It says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says. You see, both of them are addressing simple. The simple, this is someone who is undecided, who is uncommitted, unresolved, unsure of the way that he or she should go, okay? This is a person who's sort of a swing voter, right? Could go one way or another. Someone who lacks sense, not just sense, but actually lacks heart. They've, they've not firmly committed themselves to knowing God's wisdom and following his ways. They would be classified as immature in the faith or naive. And because they are naive, they're easily deceived by the messages that are coming at them. They're not the wise man who knows God intimately and follows his counsel in all situations and circumstances regardless of what is is in front of him. And nor are they the mocker who hates and scoffs at God. This is one who is simple, who is unknowing, uninstructed, and sometimes the fool. And both wisdom and folly are calling out to them. Now, unless you begin to think in your mind, well, you know, trying to decide who you think those people are among us, I just want to say quite frankly, that's most of us all the time, and that's all of us some of the time, right? We all fall into that category, okay? We live in, and not only that, but we live in a culture that not only tries to extend adolescence, but actually tries to extend infancy, It wants to see us live as little children. We're in a culture that breeds consumers that must have every need that they could possibly perceive of right here and right now when they need it. Like infants that cry because they cannot change their diaper or feed themselves. They cry when they're tired. They cry because they're unable to understand, unable to reason, unable to commit, unable to provide or care for themselves, let alone other people. They do not know the value of pursuing Pursuing the wisdom of God. And our culture entices us to become consumers of things rather than pursuers of God. Right there we're presented with a choice. It wants to call us to seek immediate gratification in whatever it is that you fancy. In whatever it is that you desire rather than find eternal joy. It will provide substitutes. And so many of the messages that you hear every single day are ones that would persuade you to satisfy your every passion, your every feeling, your every desire rather than seek God. You want proof of this? Watch commercials. And not only are wisdom and folly calling out to the same people, But they're also calling from similar locations. 
Verse 3 and verse 14 tell us that they both call out from prominent places, from the very highest places in the town. Basically, they're right next to each other, calling out at the same time. Maybe this one's over on this hill right here, but this one's over on that hill right there. But you can hear both of their voices calling out at the same time. Now, it's pretty easy, I think, for us to recognize some of the foolishness in the voices that we hear, like when we go to campus or, or when we go to work or to the mall or to government offices. We can hear some of that foolishness come out in the media or when we read them on the internet. But what we often forget is that at the same time that all of those voices are speaking foolishness, speaking folly to us, God is also speaking, giving us his wisdom. He is everywhere that we go speaking to us at the same time that all of those other voices are ringing out. We were told that in chapter one. We were told that in chapter eight. But the most prominent place that we need to be aware of is the throne of our own hearts. What message is going to take its seat in your heart and in your mind? Is it going to be God's wisdom or the world's foolishness? Not only are both speaking to the same people from similar locations, but verses 5 and 6 and 17 tell us that both wisdom and folly make promises. They promise satisfaction. They promise food and drink. They promise nourishment. They promise to prosper you, to better your life in one way or another. And if we, but if we had the ability to just kind of step back and objectively look at our lives... To see what's happening in the day in, day out, ebb and flow of your life, what you would see is that you are constantly not only being bombarded by these messages that are conflicting, but you are running back and forth from one to another to another, up this hill to this one, until this one offers what seems like a better promise, and then I'm running over there, but then I realize the error of my ways, and I turn back to this one. I'm going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, just exhausting myself as I scamper from one house to another between wisdom and folly. I'm just curious, have you ever felt that way? That you're just wearing yourself out, running back and forth from what seems like one good thing to the next, never really knowing whether or not it's the right thing, but you do know that you're never truly satisfied. You're only regularly feeling disappointed or frustrated or ashamed or maybe even enslaved. You wish you were more discerning. You wish you made better choices. You wish you were wiser. You wish you knew right from wrong in that circumstance, in that situation, whatever it might be. Well, oh simple one, turn in here. Because though there are similarities in these invitations, there are stark contrasts between them. I mean, first of all, look at the difference in the character between wisdom and folly. And this is just helpful in identifying the, like how, how good or how wrong are the messages that you hear. Just examining their character. You know, what do they represent and what are they calling you to? Okay, wisdom, we see she's a diligent worker. Verse 1 says that she has built her house. She has hewn seven pillars. Wisdom is constructive. Wisdom is edifying. Wisdom builds up. We saw in in chapter 8 that she is involved in creation, right? And and, and in this passage, we see that she's labored to build a perfect home, large, accommodating, and full of blessing. Wisdom has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. We see there's wisdom is humble. She's servant-hearted and hospitable. In love, she lavishes her guests with the choicest foods because meat was a luxury in that day. And yet it was always there at her table. Her wine was carefully handcrafted. What we see here is that wisdom is like the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. She does everything with excellence. But verse 14 tells us that folly, on the other hand, just sits there like a sluggard. She does nothing. Takes her seat in the highest places of the town and she does that to exalt herself. 
to make much of herself. In her pride, she pretends to be some kind of authority, demanding and commanding what everyone else should do, foolishly seducing others into her same ignorant ways. Folly doesn't slaughter her own beast or mix her own wine, but instead she makes up her own proverb to appear to be wise. And she says there in verse 17, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. See, she's undisciplined. She would rather take the easy and exciting path of stealing and secrecy rather than earning her own food or being open and honest and above reproach. With wisdom, you get expensive meat and wine. But with folly, you get some cheap imitation of bread and water. Also, look at how industrious and how compassionate wisdom is. There in verse 3, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. You see, wisdom cares very deeply about people. She selflessly wants to see them live. And so she sends out her messengers. She sends out her servants. She sends out her ambassadors with the good news of an invitation to her banquet. I hope you see what I did there. We think about this in light of all of scripture. This is a picture of the imitation, a picture of the mission of the church sending out Christ sending out his, uh, his apostles, his prophets, his evangelists, his pastors, his teachers, his missionary. Christ sending out parents and children's ministry workers and people who live and work to be his ambassadors in the world to make disciples of all nations wherever they are and whatever they're doing. But Folly, on the other hand, she just exalts herself. She tries to place herself in the seat of authority I want this position. I want this leadership. I want this authority. I want to be able to hold it over all of you and tell you what you should do and how you should live. She seduces others into following her ignorant ways. She is loud. She is boisterous. She boasts in herself. She's seeking her own fame and her own glory at the expense of all who would stand in her path. Friends, this is our culture. Whoever can make the most noise or gain the most attention, whoever can achieve the most fame or the most notoriety or the most success or or just at least give the perception of that, whoever can arrive at the most glory in and among people around them as we compare ourselves to them, that person is best and you must follow them. They clearly have got it all figured out. Never mind the fact that that person is an idiot and knows nothing. Seeks to prey upon our deep-seated sinful desires and so that many are seduced into following them. I mean, I think, I mean, I think of so many examples right here. You know, I, I can't help but think about Oprah. I think about Madonna. I think about Kanye West. And since I'm on the music theme, I think about punk rock, Right? I mean, what, what nonsense. I mean, the, the, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones didn't even know how to play their instruments. And yet, because they appealed to our anti-authority teen angst, they were able to start much like beside themselves. They had no idea what they were doing. But they were able to start an entire genre of music where non-talented people can get in there and just basically give the bird to the world and everybody's like, yeah! You know, it just doesn't make sense. So anyway, I'm back on the topic now. In our culture, attitude, appearance, perceptions, and presentation matters more than truth or wisdom or purity of heart. The character of wisdom and folly, you see, couldn't be more different. And as you think about those messages that you hear day in and day out, those messages that you are tempted to follow, what character do you see presented in them? What are they leading you toward? What are they offering to you? In addition to the difference in character is the contrast between their messages. Wisdom's call 
In verses 5 and 6 is a call to everyone, no matter how simple, no matter how foolish, and no matter how wise, to come and eat of her bread and drink of her wine, but to leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. This is a call with unbelievable promises to it, but it requires something of us. It's a call to abandon your former simple and foolish ways to accept that which will lead you to true life. This is a call to repent. This is a call to turn away from your foolish desire to live for yourself as if this is your world and you are God, that you can set your own pace, that you can be the authority in your life and everything else can bow to you. This is a, this is a call to recognize that sinful tendency within yourself to try to find life in anything other than God. And it is a call to turn from it, to receive life and the wisdom that he gives You see, this message requires something of us. It requires a lifelong commitment to learn and to apply, to become wise, to take on insight. Ultimately, it is a call to follow Christ. Friends, wisdom calls us to change, but it also gives us the grace to do it. It says, look, it's worth it. You'll have life you'll be able to come and eat of my bread and drink of my wine. That grace is present for you to do what I've called you to do. But we must actively and intentionally and purposefully walk in it. Now, foolishness, foolishness requires no repentance. You don't have to change a single thing. You just keep on doing what you're doing whatever you want. In fact, it attempts, as it says there in verse 15, to lead you away from the straight and upright path. Okay? So it's out there calling out to those who actually go in the right way, say, hey, come over here. Enjoy a little leisure. Enjoy a little momentary pleasure. Escape for a little bit. You see, folly simply encourages us to immediate gratification for our natural desires. What she says to us is, here, come, enjoy. It's sweet. It's delicious. Never mind the fact that it is stolen and secret. That only makes it more fun. She preys upon our natural desire to want what is not ours. She says, take this now. It's going to feel so good. And many are the fool who will give in And indulge. Wisdom, on the other hand, offers us so much more. Hers is a far better feast of choice meat and wine. But do you notice that it takes more time to prepare? She promises life, she promises blessing, she promises true satisfaction for those who wait. The folly promises nothing beyond momentary pleasure. Here, you can have it now. Bread and water, but you can have it now. One final contrast between the invitation of wisdom and and the offer of folly is their ultimate destination. In verse 6, we see that wisdom declares for all to hear. You see that? Wisdom is above reproach. She's out there in the open. She's out there in the light. She's publicly declaring to all that there is life and understanding found in her, right? There's nothing to hide, okay? She's out there and she continues to make that known to us. But Folly, on the other hand, she won't tell you her end. Perhaps it's because she doesn't know or perhaps it's because she scoffs at the thought of it. But wisdom tells you what it is in verse 18. The one who accepts Folly's invitation does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. See, Folly doesn't tell us that the end of self-indulgence, of immediately gratifying our every desire and our every passion is death. 
Perhaps it's because she's too busy just living for the moment to consider her end. And she continues to just satisfy her own desire, one after another after another, not knowing that she has enslaved herself to that which will kill her, not just physically, but ultimately eternally. But friends, the nature of biblical wisdom is to consider the end of your actions. What will this result in? What will this lead you toward? And if it's going to go in a negative path, biblical wisdom says, turn the other way. You don't flirt with it. You don't play around with it. No, you consider the end. To refuse to consider what you're doing and where it will lead you is the essence of folly and rebellion to God. It's to go through life with that mantra, you know what, I don't know and I don't care. But to choose folly's invitation is to choose death. You see there that her house is a graveyard leading only to eternal condemnation and separation from God. And so what Proverbs has presented to us in this one, just like all of Proverbs, is that there are really only two ways to live. Now, perhaps you've never considered what would happen to you when you die. Maybe you think to yourself that we all end up in basically the same spiritual place. Maybe we all end up in heaven or nirvana or whatever it is you think that that might be. Perhaps you think to yourself, you know what, this life is all there is. And when we die, we're dirt. That's it. We return to the dust and we are no more. But the Bible presents something very, very different to us. It says, listen, you have a soul that can never die. And death is not the great equalizer. Yes, we all die. Yes, we all come to an end. And everything we live for this life means nothing. But death is the end of the path that you are on. Death is that deciding point. But when we look upon our lives, we're able to examine whether we live, whether we followed the way of wisdom, or whether we chose to live on the path of folly. That's what matters. When we come to that point, it's decision time. It's a deciding point. When God looks upon our lives, he's going to see what path we lived on. And at that point, that is where our eternity lies. And this is what the book of Proverbs is all about. We don't have forever. We don't have tomorrow. We're given this call to choose which path we're going to set our foot upon. See, we were all created by God to image him, to reflect his nature and his character, his purposes and promises for us. We were called to live in intimate fellowship with him, to walk with him, to live in his wisdom. But we have all chosen to rebel against it. We've all taken the invitation of of folly. We've all entered into her house. We've all ate of her bread and we've drank her water. We have placed ourselves among that same graveyard, those who are dead. We've chosen folly. We've chosen death. We've all chosen to satisfy our immediate lusts rather than to seek our soul's satisfaction in God. And yet despite all of that rebellion, all of that foolishness, all of that sin, God sent forth his message of wisdom in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, to invite us back to his banquet. Do you understand that? We were in the other house and he offered us to come, to eat, to drink, to live. Christ lived a life of perfect Wisdom, life that you and I could never live. And he sacrificed that life by dying on a cross for folly, for sin, for rebellion. He rose from the grave so that those who, who are in him, who turn away from folly's invitation and receive life, live in wisdom, they might have eternal life with God forever, walking in his ways. But you have two invitations before you, two and only two. One from wisdom and the other from folly. And which one will you choose?
Now, in addition to these two invitations, this text shows us, second, that there are two responses to wisdom's offer. Now, we don't have to actively choose folly. That's automatic for us because we are sinful human beings. It's a given that we are going to want to immediately gratify our every desire, and we do often. We do frequently. We have condemned ourselves. We don't have to think about it, right? That's not an option that's before us. That's automatic. The question becomes, what do we respond to when we're given this offer of wisdom? How do we respond when we are confronted with truth? How do we respond when we are rebuked, when we are corrected, when we are admonished, or when we are instructed in God's wisdom? Ultimately, we will either hate it, mock it, and scoff at it, which maybe you're doing right now as I continue to talk, or we will receive it gladly. We will love it and grow wiser still. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. See, over and over again, the book of Proverbs reminds us that at any given moment, we are headed in one of two directions. We are either headed up the way of wisdom or down the path of folly. That each moment of every single day, every choice you make, consciously or unconsciously, we are heading in one of two directions. Up the way of wisdom, or down the path of folly. And like a ball on an incline, unless there is something at work that rolls us up the hill towards wisdom, unless there is intentional and continual effort, the simple will drift downward. They won't remain simple. They'll become fools. They'll become stubborn and prideful. But they won't remain there either. They'll continue down the path towards hard-heartedness and insolence to the point at which they close themselves off to God, becoming godless. But it's not even done there because eventually they work their way towards becoming a scoffer and a hater of God, someone who is actively opposed to God, a militant rebel to his will. How do I know this? No one starts off as a scoffer. No one does. No one comes out of their mother's womb and shakes their fist in defiance towards God. They start out as simple and over time work their way down. A scoffer will abuse the one who lovingly attempts to correct him. Maybe not physically, but verbally as he lashes out in anger against them. He adamantly refuses to heed advice or to listen to reason. A scoffer is a wicked man who would injure anyone who dares to admonish or refute him. He is one who hates the one who offers him a gentle rebuke. Friends, there are scoffers all around us. I remember a couple of years ago, we took a group of college students out on campus doing spiritual surveys. And I'm out there and there's uh, just kind of on the quad. And at one point, this middle-aged woman, very pleasant-looking woman, was walking by. You know, she had this bounce in her step and a smile on her face. And so one of the young women that was with us went over to her and asked her if she'd be willing to fill out a spiritual survey. And she said, yeah, I'd love to. She's filling it out. She's kind of asking some questions. And she quickly came to the realization that this young woman was a Christian. And her demeanor completely changed. She got visibly angry. Her face turned bright red. And as she continued to fill out her answers to the spiritual question, she began to ridicule and to mock not only Christ, but this young girl. And just yelling out her answers for all to hear how ridiculous the thought of Christ was. And how dare this girl in her stupidity ever follow Christ. And when she finished, she threw the clipboard back at the girl and she says, And I hope you don't vote! (laughs) 
before she huffed away. <laughs> now, being the, you know, the compassionate and Christ-like man that I am, I laughed at her. I laughed at that ridiculous comment. But I laughed because at that point I didn't know how else to respond. In life, we will encounter scoffers. Those who hate, those who abuse, those who mock, those who injure because of Christ. At times, we need to be wise And to take a step back once they have clearly proven that they want nothing to do with God's wisdom. But friends, this text does not mean, it does not mean that you get to decide for them. That you do not get to pick and choose, that one's a scoffer, but that one's not. That's not what it says. It doesn't say to avoid somebody that you think is a scoffer. You are to take the wisdom of God to them. When they prove themselves to be scoffers, you take a step back and you focus on others. But even there, there's no time frame, right? It takes wisdom to know what that is. But here's the thing that you ultimately need to consider, Christian. The wisdom of God is worth the pain. It is worth the suffering. It is worth the hatred, the humiliation, and even death that we might receive at their hands. Christ told us, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And I'm calling you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow me. And that means that if I lay down my life for you, you might lay down your life for me. Paul tells Timothy, listen, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. And we should expect no less. Because this is one of the things that propels us into mission. The, in, the unfathomable worth of the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. No, it's only after that person has proven themselves to be a scoffer that we take a step back from them and seek to teach others the wisdom of God. Now, you might not be a scoffer, but I wonder, how do you tend to respond when you are corrected? Somebody comes along and they reprove you, they rebuke you. How do you respond to your teachers, to authorities, How do do you respond when you come under the loving discipline of another? Do you ever scoff at them? Mock them under your breath? Do you ever think to yourself, you know what, I'd like to get my hands on that guy. Do you ever blow them off? Disregard them? Say, you know what, I want nothing to do with that person? Can I just tell you that indifference, apathy, or giving someone a cold shoulder is a form of violence and hatred? Children, Have you ever told your parents as they were trying to lovingly discipline you, I hate you? I think if you look at that carefully, you recognize that there's a little bit of scoffer in each one of us. In our pride, we do not want to be corrected. We do not want to open ourselves up to the wisdom and counsel of God. Or let's just look at the opposite. Verses eight and nine. Do you love and do you appreciate the wise man who reproves you when was the last time you thanked your teachers and and helped them to make their task in overseeing your soul a joy rather than a burden Do you gladly receive instruction so that you might continually grow in wisdom? Do you yearn to take the position of a student so that you might learn and grow? Do you surround yourself with wise people who love Jesus and are going to help you to do that more? And you want to glean as much wisdom from them as you possibly can. And you love them for it. And you tell them how you love them. Are you always striving to grow? Because that's what a wise man does. He's humble. He's grateful. 
He's teachable. He's loving. He's always learning, always seeking to grow, always striving to be more skillful in godly living. He loves to surround himself with people who love God's wisdom. He's the kind of person that makes teaching a delight rather than a duty. Now, my guess is that most of us are somewhere in between the scoffer and the wise man. But that's a good thing because that means that there's still hope for us. We can still respond. Now, the worst thing that we can do is nothing. Well, maybe that's not the worst thing that we can do. Maybe the worst thing that we could do is say, I hate you, and get up and walk out of the room, right? You know, just scoffing at us. But, but for most of us here, right, I don't think anybody's going to get up angrily and scoff at me and, and walk away. Most of us here, the, the worst thing that we can do is absolutely nothing. To hear these words, to nod in approval, and to step out the door and forget all about it, to do absolutely nothing with what you've been given. But here's the thing. You are no longer neutral. That's the way that wisdom works. Once you've been told, you can't untell it. Right? It's been given to you. You have a response to make. And you have it today. Right? You can't claim ignorance. You can't say, I didn't know because you do know. And so what that means is when you walk out of here, you're going to place your foot on one of two paths. Either you are going to seek to humbly grow in the grace of God, and walk in wisdom, or you're going to choose to do nothing and to place your foot on the path of folly, to close your heart off one more step toward God. That's the way that it works. Either you will open your heart and mind and actively seek to grow wiser and increase in learning or you will close your heart to this truth and take one step further from it. One step further towards hardening your heart. One step towards searing your conscience. One step closer to hardening yourself and closing yourself off to God to become a mocker and a scoffer and a hater of him. And so it all comes back to how will you respond to this wisdom that has been given? Will you love wisdom and the ones who give it? Or will you hate wisdom and its teachers? But the choice is yours. Neutrality is not an option. Now verses 11 and 12 add for us, For by me, this is wisdom speaking, for by me, wisdom, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. If you are wise, it will be for your benefit. Life and blessing are yours forever. But if you refuse you alone will bear the consequences. Your rejection of the truth and wisdom of God, you need to understand this, does not make it untrue or unwise. It simply is. You can rail at it. You can shake your fist at it. You can curse it. You can try to kill it all you want, but it doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't make it unwise. It simply is. You can only respond. You are going to be held responsible for how you either humbly receive it or mockingly reject it. Those are the two options that you have before you. And so friends, the wise response here is to humble yourself. Humble yourself before God, the God who made and sustains all that there is. To repent of your pride and of your rejection of him. To admit that God is far, far wiser than you are and that you can do nothing, absolutely nothing without him. You can't even breathe without him. You can't cause your heart to beat without him. You cannot stand on this planet without him. 
You cannot cause the sun to shine or the rains to fall. You cannot provide food for yourself if it does not grow. You are dependent upon him in all things. Are you going to shake your fist and scoff at him who has blessed you so abundantly? He has graciously offered you his wisdom. He has graciously offered you eternal life and salvation from all of your sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He has given you his word so that you might know him, so that you might grow in wisdom and learn what it means to love him. He has sent his church out to train and to equip and to teach and to instruct and to encourage and to edify, to build up towards maturity, towards wisdom in Christ. To those who are in Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of the Son of God who unites us always to Christ and who strengthens us to grow in holiness and godliness before him. Friends, are we going to scoff at such an offer? To receive it will multiply your days and add eternity to your life. And so friends, be wise. How do you need to open yourself up more to receiving God's wisdom? Some of you might be here and and you've never accepted Christ. You've never seen your need of a savior. You've basically gone through life living on your own, your own terms, and it's been frustrating. It's been futile. You recognize that. But you've gone your own way. And for you to open yourself up to receiving the wisdom of God is to accept that Christ has died for your sin and to trust in him for your future. For others, it means that we need to be more diligent to actively place ourselves in a position of a learner. To realize the incomparable value and reward of wisdom and to do all that we can to seek and to learn and to grow, to study, to pray, to be diligent, to to get involved in like foundations courses, anything we can to soak and to glean and to be transformed. For some of you, it means you need to humble yourself and open yourself up more to receive counsel from other people that you realize that you've truly hidden your heart away from other people. And in your pride, you've refused to really share life with them. Maybe for some of you, that means becoming an active member of this church so that you can grow and share life together and encourage one another and build one another up. And to really invest and to share life together and this wisdom together the way that God intended for us to do it. But whatever you do, humbly respond by receiving God's wisdom today. So far, we've we've had two invitations placed before us, one from wisdom and the other from folly, and, and we've seen that we can respond to wisdom's offer in one of two ways, either to humbly receive it, to become a continual learner, or to reject it, and to say in our hearts that there is no God. But make no mistake about it, though there are two invitations, and two responses, there is only one way to wisdom. And it's found there in verse 10. As much as we would like to believe that there are many avenues to truth, many avenues to wisdom, and that we can pick and choose from them as, as we please, God himself makes it clear that there is really only one. Now verse 10 is the climax of the entire chapter, nine chapter introduction to the book of Proverbs. In fact, it is the single verse that summarizes all of Proverbs for us. And it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the very foundation of all wisdom. The knowledge of the holy God of the universe, that, my friends, is insight. We've already seen this before. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 7. We saw it again in chapter 4, verse 7. The psalmist sings of it in Psalm 111, verse 10. 
Unless you think to yourself, you know what, that that idea, fear of the Lord, that's an Old Testament idea, but we're in New Testament times now. That was then, and this is now. I just want to draw your attention to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, when he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The God of the universe made and sustains all that there is, including you and me. Everything was made by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You are his creation. Are you going to live in complete disregard of him? The Psalms tell us over and over and over again that the whole earth trembles at his presence. Do you think that you ought to be any different? When in reality, it's only because of the sacrifice of the one and only Son of, uh, of God, Jesus Christ, that you are even able to stand in his presence. So why do you think that we should not fear him? If we live in a lighthearted age. We fear death. We fear suffering. We fear humiliation. But we have no fear of God before our eyes. Because what we do is we cast something else at the center of our gaze. We look in the mirror always. We see ourselves. We have placed ourselves at the center of our lives. And we fear anything that would, that would confront ourselves more than we do, would live in the fear of God. But friends, Proverbs tells us don't make that same foolish mistake. You know, I mentioned... Back when we first began Proverbs, and back in Proverbs chapter 1, the very first sermon on this, that for over 400 years, ever since the days of Descartes, when he said, I think, therefore I am, Western culture has been trying to build civilizations. We have tried to build our personal lives on the foundation of ourselves. I am at the center. I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am what I am, not him. Do you see what's happening there? And we have lived in that reality, right? We are the beginning of wisdom, that knowledge of ourselves, that that is inside. But friends, that philosophy has utterly failed. It has not produced what it has promised. In and of ourselves, we have no capacity for generating knowledge or understanding or morality or hope or truth or certainty. We are not the authority or the standard on truth and knowledge. All of that is outside of us. Knowledge cannot start from within and work its way out because if it could, that would make us God. And we are not God. We prove that a thousand times a day. Wisdom starts with God. And if we want to know, truly know anything in this world, we must start with him. He is the one way to wisdom. And so fearing the Lord is then the beginning of wisdom. So what does it mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean just like you're like, you, you wet your pants every time you see him? No. So familial, a filial fear, the way that a young son fears his father who loves him and provides his every need, but yet there's still this desire to honor and I don't want to get a whooping, right? To fear the Lord is ultimately to see God for who he truly is, right? To fear the Lord is to tremble at his power. It's to stand in awe of his greatness. To fear the Lord is is to revere his holiness and his justice and to marvel at his glory. To fear the Lord means to wonder at his vastness, to respect him for his righteousness and his wisdom, to be amazed by his grace, to admire him for his love, and to honor him for his mercy. 
To fear the Lord is to know God. It's to love God and to worship God for all that he truly is, all that he has revealed himself to be, not the parts that I like, not the parts that I want to pick and choose, but for all that he has revealed himself to be. To fear the Lord is to love him. It's to live to please him. It's to spend eternity praising him for his glorious grace. To fear the Lord is to live a life of worshiping and adoring submission to the one true and living God of all that there is. We need the fear of the Lord. Why would we worship apart from the fear of the Lord? What would we worship? were it not for the fear of the Lord. We need the fear of the Lord to fight against sin and foolishness. Otherwise, we would sooner defend our sin than seek to spend our lives killing it. But when we see God for who he is, friends, we can't help but see ourselves for who we truly are. And seeing ourselves for who we truly are is what's gonna drive us again and again and again and again and again and again and again into the loving and merciful arms of God. It's what's going to drive us to Christ to receive grace and mercy so that we might become like him in holiness and righteousness and truth. Martin Luther once said, Scripture exalts the fear of God. It impresses on men so to live that they fear God's wrath at all times and feel as though they have merited death. This is the first element of salvation when, because of sin, we see no deliverance. This is the highest wisdom to go about our tasks in the full awareness of God's wrath. In this way, we were made ready like the earth for the plow to receive the divine seed the fruit of which is eternal life. We should cling to the truth that it is not a damnable thing to feel God's wrath, but that in this feeling is the beginning of deliverance. This feeling, this fear of the Lord is a singular gift of God. Friends, the fear of the Lord is not a bad thing. It's what drives us over and over again to Christ. To find favor, to find grace, to find mercy, and to be conformed into his image. Without the fear of the Lord, what would you live for? Would you live lives that you were created to live? Lives that God says, this is the way to live to its fullest? Would you live in the joy and fellowship of God? Where would you be without the fear of the Lord? And so friends, we have these two invitations before us. We can respond in one of two ways, but only one way leads us to life. And so let's not get them confused. During the English Reformation, there was a bishop by the name of John Hooper, and he was condemned to death under the regime of Bloody Mary because he held to the doctrine of justification by faith. He was sentenced to be burned at the stake and as they were tying him to the stake, getting everything ready, about to light the fire, there was a voice that called out from the crowd and said to him, but Bishop Hooper, life is sweet, death is bitter. And he called out to him because he was hoping that he might recant, giving him the worldly wisdom that says, listen, life is good, don't, don't exhaust that, don't give that away. Death is bitter. Well, John Hooper thought about it for a moment. And then he responded with the wisdom of God. Life to come is sweet. Death to come is more bitter. It was Hooper's answer that was truly wise. Because he understood what the fear of the Lord is. That it is truly the beginning of wisdom. And he chose the one way to true and eternal life. Friends, God has made a way for each and every one of us to be wise through his son, Jesus Christ. 
But you have a choice to make. Wisdom and life or folly and death. So choose wisely. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I can't help but over and over again be just confronted by the reality of your grace and mercy. That despite the fact that we have scoffed and mocked and hated you, lived as rebels to your will, you continue to offer us a banquet, a feast that will go on for eternity. You offer us life. You offer us blessing. You offer us joy and hope and love and everything that our hearts have truly been longing for. And you do that through your son, Christ. God, forgive us for the ways that we settle for mud pies, rubbish, stolen bread, and water in secret. When you hold out such a feast for us, God, we pray that you would convict our hearts and that we would be able to rejoice at the wisdom that you give and live in the fear of the Lord, not a condemning fear, but the fear that wants to honor and please and love our Father who is over all things. We pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.